So I don't know if you uh, realize this, but um, Rocky Balboa is the man. He's the Italian stallion. He's the symbol of all that is strong and tough and determined. And this movie franchise, along with Star Wars and Indiana Jones, was the one that was always there in the background of my youth and my childhood. And the great thing was, in order to be Rocky, all I had to do was to was to put my hood up, to roll my shoulders, and to dance on my toes a bit. And all of a sudden, there I was. I was Rocky. But there's also something that I've come to learn about uh, each Rocky movie. And it's that each movie in the franchise has a particular type of a scene in it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a summary scene. In film speak, it's called a montage. <clears throat> and a montage is a way of s- stitching together a bunch of related things over time and and then to compress it into a couple of minutes. And so the montages in the Rocky movies are, uh, show us the heavy training regimen that he goes through in order to get fight ready. And then usually this scene is backed either by a 70s funk soundtrack or uh, a rock track with drums and synths, depending on which Rocky movie it is. And the montage in Rocky 1 shows Rocky skipping ropes, lifting weights, doing one-hand push-ups, doing one-hand pull-ups, doing sit-ups while getting slapped on the abs, and even chasing and catching a chicken. And in the background, his coach is yelling mostly unintelligible things to him. I assume that he's trying to be motivating. And then in Rocky IV, the montage has Rocky running up mountainsides in his work boots, chopping woods. Um, He picks up carts loaded with people. He pulls a sled and he does other feats of strength, all set against the backdrop of a beautiful mountain. And it's all pretty impressive. And all of this helps us to see Rocky as um, a blue-collar man of the people. He's the kind of man who could be your neighbor. He's the kind of guy that would help you to get your cord of wood into the woodshed whilst getting your abs ripped and your biceps pumped. And he could also come around and babysit the kids if you ever wanted a night off. He's that kind of guy. Now, when I read on Wikipedia, I, they... They explain a movie montage as being a technique in film editing in which a series of short shots are edited into a sequence to condense space, time, and information. And how it's explained in one of the dictionaries online, it says it's it's a process or a technique of selecting, editing, and piecing together separate sections of film to form a continuous whole. And most films that you've watched have them, whether it's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the Rocky movies, uh, Karate Kid, um, Up, every underdog movie that you've ever watched has a montage. And like I said, the goal of the montage is to squeeze weeks or months of real time into three or four minutes. They show growth and transformation in the life of the character. And at the start of the montage, uh, yeah, the person or the team is clearly not up to the challenge, but by the end of the montage, they are hitting better, they are running faster than they ever had before. And a montage looks something like this.
All right. So if you were listening online, what you were just listening to was the training montage from Rocky Three, And uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find three minutes of more exquisite cinema than what you just watched or, or heard. And in fact, if you are listening to this online, I'd encourage you to pause the sermon and watch those three minutes uh, before continuing the sermon. It is that good. And, and uh, that's, that's what Joshua chapter 10, verse 25 through the end of Joshua chapter 12 is. It's a montage. It's a summary. See, because what's happened is that the Israelites have crossed the Jordan. They've taken Jericho, as we know. They've taken Ai, as we know. And they've, uh, and they've defeated the coalition of kings who attacked the Gibeonites. And then the writer of Joshua has given us really detailed accounts of, of these fights, of these battles at Jericho, at Ai, and then near to Gibeon. So we know the score. We understand the main themes that the battle is, is God's, that he uses his people, that God's goal is to judge uh, the Canaanites and to, and to get rid of the systems of oppression and ungodliness and sin that have held sway in this region for far too long. His goal is to set up his kingdom, his system instead. But just like Rocky, now we switch into montage style. We move from extended blow-by-blow scenes to glimpses and to summaries. And my goal here, here today is to get you to understand how you can create your own montage. So... Right before we start, what I'd like you to do in your bulletin or your notebook is to write the numbers one through five under the sermon note space. Write down one through five and on top of it, write the word theme. Numbers one through five with the word theme on top of it. Just make sure there's enough room after the one, the numbers to write something. So, in broad strokes, let me explain what we see in chapter chapter ten uh, between chapter ten verse twenty five and chapter twelve verse twenty four. First, the m- military campaign moves south, and there's a series of fights and victories, and then the campaign moves north, and there's another series of fights and victories, including what may be. Yeah, the biblical equivalent of the Battle of Five Armies that takes place at this place called the Waters of Miron, which is about there. And during this retelling, what the author of Joshua sometimes does is he pauses the montage, he turns to us, looks at the camera, and he gives us some theological insight into what's happening here. So that's the wide-angle view of things. Uh, Southern campaign, northern campaign. But let's zoom in a little so that we can see the structure that, that Joshua is using. Now, chap, now verse 28 of chapter 10 says this. That day, Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its king to the sword and he totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. And then on into verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there and he did to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And hopefully you will see already that there are some patterns starting to emerge. So first Joshua, he takes the city, then everyone is 
put to the sword. No survivors are left. And then it says that he, he did to the king as he did to the last king. And that's pretty much how chapter 10 goes from Makeda to Libna to uh, Lachish to Eglon to Hebron and over to Debir. Joshua attacks. He puts everyone to the sword. He leaves no survivors. And he does to the king what he did to the other kings. This is the, this is the summary of the southern campaign. It's a montage. It's a long protracted campaign summed up in a few verses. One scene flashes onto the next scene. The locations change. The opponents change. But time after time, the victory is given. And you see this underdog getting more and more, 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 more and more confident. You see these unlikely champions starting to hone their, their, uh, technique. You see them getting it right more often than they are getting it wrong. And you see this look in their eye change from feeling really defeated to cautious optimism. And finally, to this thought that, yes, perhaps we can do this. You can see them rising to the challenge of their rivals. And yes, time after time, we see that the Israelites are the last known survivor. And some might even say that they are getting the eye of the tiger. And so you start to really get into the story. And in spite of yourself, you find yourself on the edge of your seat, totally immersed in this story of the underdog getting the upper hand. Because the failure of AI and the deception of the Gibeonites is now history and the future is looking bright. And then the author of Joshua pauses mid-action. He turns to the camera and he gives us a summary and a theological insight in verse 40 of chapter 10. Let's turn to verse 40 of chapter 10 where he says this. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He, he totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then it says, verse 43, Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now, what it says in verse 42, it says that all these kings and their lands, Joshua um, conquered in one campaign. What this means is there was battle after battle after battle. There was victory after victory after victory. And this reminds me of a song, of a hymn that I used to sing in Sunday school in my in my church in Wales. And it went something like this, or went exactly like this. It said, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory you Each victory will help you some other to win. Let me say that again. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. And those lyrics have always stuck with me. I still sing it to myself even now. Um, Many songs I've heard and I no longer remember, but that one that for some reason has lodged in my psyche. And I think it's because it shows us that life is a series of battles. And it teaches us that, that, that victory comes from the, the momentum of habit and the power of self-discipline and the importance of right choice. Each successful battle, no matter how, how hard it was at the time, becomes a launch pad for success in the next one. This is how we get the eye of the tiger. God's style. So, 
let me try to explain you in, in, uh, in God's way of doing things, how it works. The more often and the more regularly you do something which is hard, the more achievable it becomes. Note I don't say easier because it never gets easy. And for those of us who are Christians here, fighting your old nature is a never-ending battle. It's a battle which you can never relax your guard uh, in or from which you can never take a day off. But the person who, who is depending on Jesus' strength and who is living a life of choosing right, victory becomes more achievable more often. And I think that what the author of Joshua is 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 uh, really describing in listing fight after fight after victory after victory in this montage and what the author of that hymn uh, means when he says each victory will help you some other to win is that I think that what they're both trying to tell us is that there's power in spiritual momentum. There is power in spiritual m- momentum. And what that means for every one of us who follow Jesus is that every battle is an important one because, because every battle can, can, can turn into that one which turns your life around, which, which can start you off in a new direction. One in which you, you start to consistently choose chasing after God and doing his will each each battle, each fight can become a turning point in your life and on a human level. I think we understand this uh, because any of us who've chosen to quit smoking or to eat more healthily or to get more exercise or to spend t- more time with the family or to turn off the phone sooner um, or to wake up earlier, we know the value of the first battle, the blood and the sweat and the tears of the first battle that says change is possible. I can do this. Each victory you win, each victory will help you some other to win. Now for months I hadn't run. At first it was because I had an, an injury. I like running. But for months I, I hadn't run because of an injury. But then I went to a physiotherapist and I got really good advice. And so I was physically ready to go. There was nothing holding me back, but I wasn't mentally ready to go. I had all sorts of excuses. And so the first day, getting back on my running shoes in sub-zero temperatures and starting to run again was tough. But it is absolutely worth it. And so, and, and, and so what I want to understand is that there's power in, re- in replacing bad habits with good habits. Um, but there's an even more fundamental power that's at the basis of the faithful Christian life. And what is that? Verse 42, it says, All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And so success comes from God fighting on behalf of his people. He fought for, for, he fought for his people. They had the might of the creator of the universe on their side. We heard a couple of weeks ago how he rained down hailstones on, on, on the enemies of the Israelites and how he stopped the sun setting in order to grant them success. And so as we read in Second Chronicles 16 verse 9, it's true that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And in the same way, the arm of the Lord is ready to work on behalf of those who are his. So, so far, 
the Israelites have crossed the Jordan. They've, they've split the land in two by attacking Jericho and Ai. Then after beating this coalition of southern kings led by Adonai Zedek, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago, they head on south and they capture city after city after city. Then in verse 43 of chapter 10, it says that they return to their camp. They return to Gilgal. And, and remember that, that this is the base camp that they established right after crossing the Jordan. And right there, if you remember going back weeks and weeks now, is that it's at that place that they set up a monument made of stones to remind them of, of God's miracle working faithfulness. And so they're back at a base camp. They are looking at this monument once again, but now they have all these fresh new stories of God's working. So these stones that they've piled up grow in meaning each and every day. And then in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So now Joshua and the Israelites face another coalition, not of southern kings led by Adonai Zedek, but of northern kings led by Jabin, king of Hazor. And in verse 6, God reminds Joshua, he says this, he says, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So once again, um, he's told this immortal refrain, do not be afraid. God knew Joshua's heart, and he knew that he was afraid. He knew that even though by now he was a battle-hardened warrior, he was also human. He was exhausted after an extended campaign, and he was now being asked to fight the fight of his life. If this was a movie, this is when the strings would start and the powerful music would start. Now, to help us understand the size of the battle which he was facing, we need to hear from a Jewish historian called Josephus, um, who also wrote about Jesus. But here he's right here, this, the, the, that this battle of the waters of Merom was so important that it worked its way into the scrolls of Josephus. And what he said is this, is, is that the combined forces of the Canaanites numbered 300,000 foot soldiers. Try to imagine that in your mind, 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 cavalry, that's riding on horses, and 20,000 chariots. Now, even if these numbers are approximate, this is a massive army. And like I said, it's the battle of Joshua's life. Plus, you have to note that there were, that they were using chariots, which we've, uh, which, yeah, which, which is new. Now, I, I just watched Wonder Woman on the weekend. And there's a scene where the Amazon women are armed with their spears and arrows and they're facing the might of the World War I uh, German army. And it's not looking good for the Amazons because it's arrows versus guns. 
And that's the kind of uneven battle that we are talking about here. Chariots are a whole new level of warfare, and there's a lot of them. There are 20,000 of them. And so the Israelites meet the the northern Canaan coalition army at the waters of Merom, which is just a few miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 7 of chapter 11, we read this. Everyone, um, verse 7 It says, so Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and they attacked them and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Once again, there's this feeling of momentum, of striking hard and striking fast. But it's it's the Lord who gives the coalition army, this army that's as numerous as the sand on the seashore into the hand of Israel. This is This is God's. Who does it? And then this account carries on. It says, verse 8, They defeated them, and they pursued them all the way to Greater Sidon, to Mishrafoth Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. And as we can see in this, in the, in, in this picture here, it's not a one-mile game of hide-and-seek. This was an epic cross-country marathon that ended up from from what I can see from this map, because this is where the waters of Merom are. This is where some of them ended up in Greater Sidon, which which is which as I look at that map, that's about uh, forty or fifty kilometers away. And then there are some that he end up here in the Valley of Mizpah, which is looks like it's about thirty kilometers away. So it was a big chase. And then again, this language is used. It says they totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone who breathed. Now, this language of destroying everyone and leaving no one breathing has been threaded through uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12. And earlier, in a sermon which I preached earlier on this, on this book, I, I talked about hyperbole, about this trash talk, which we see sometimes in ancient warrior literature. Now, regarding hyperbole or exaggeration, this is what Warren Wearsby says. He says, Israel didn't take every little king, every little city, or slay every citizen or ruler, but they did enough to break the power of the enemy and establish control over the land. And, and so this, 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 this hyperbole actually explains, um, a contradiction that, that you might notice between chapter 11, verse 23, where it says, um, so, so Joshua took the entire land, and then uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where it says there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. So Joshua took the entire land, but there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. So what it's saying is that the power of the enemy was broken, even though some still lived. Now, the rest of chapter 11 outlines for us the final parts of the northern northern campaign. It says that Jabin, the, the king of Hazor, is killed, the city of Hazor is burnt, um, and the rest of the royal cities were taken, and plunder was taken by the Israelites. And as verse 15 tells us of chapter 11, it says, Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And then verse 16 tells us the extent of the land which 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 uh, Joshua gained. It talks about the hill country, all of the, the Negev, which is a desert area, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains. And then verse 18 tells us that this campaign took, quote, a long time. 
which others have calculated as seven years. And then we're told that the, that the only tribe who forged a treaty with Israel were the Gibeonites. Uh, and if you remember a few Sundays ago, we learned how, how they lied and they pretended um, that, that they were from far away in order to sign this, this treaty. And, but it says here that no one else made a treaty. And then in chapter 11, verse 20, we are, we are given a glimpse. Here's, here's another pause. Here's the writer of, of, of this book turning to us, looking in the camera, and then we are, we are given a glimpse behind the curtain to see why did no one else make a treaty. And verse 20 of chapter 11 says this, For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And if you're anything like me, that makes you stop and go, whoa, what did I just read? So let's take a a minute now to look at what that might mean. Because on the outset, on the outside, it looks like God intentionally hardened the hearts of the Canaanites. Therefore, it, it might be argued that they weren't acting from their own will. Therefore, it's not their fault. But there are different ways of understanding this. One is to say that, well, you know, God is God and he can do anything he wants. And in some ways... Well, in all ways, that's right, is that God is God and he could do anything he wants. Um, but I would, but, but, but we also have to look at, at the character of God. And, and I would struggle to worship a God who can flip the switch and intentionally turn someone into an enemy against their will just so that he can destroy them. And that's not the God that, that we, that we see on the cross. That's not the God that we see that does not wish for anyone, uh, to perish, and that's not the God of Rahab who who responded to faith, uh, who responded with a heart of faith and was saved. So, verse twenty, I think, must be referring to something else. Now, now I've heard other people say this: is that when God hardens the heart of people, whether it's Pharaoh in Exodus or or the Canaanites here in Joshua, it's referring to uh, the same kind of effect as the sun has when it shines. That is to say, if the sunbeams land on clay, it hardens it, whereas if the sunbeams land on wax, it softens it. So these folks would say it's the same with the glory of God, is that when the glory of God lands on some people's hearts, because of the nature of their heart, that heart is hardened, just like the sun hardens clay. And for other people, when 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 God's light shines on them, it softens their heart because of the nature of their heart. And so in if, if this is true, then the hardening of the heart is less a comment on God than it is a comment on the heart of man. And you know what? And that's something which, which I find help. I find this explanation helpful. But for me, I appreciate Thomas Hale's explanation of this text. Let's, let's listen to what he says. He says this, that the rest of the Canaanites, because of their great wickedness, had no intention of calling on God's name. They had already hardened their hearts. And what God, what God didn't want was for them to surrender to the Israelites in their hardened, unrepentant state. It was to prevent their surrender that God further hardened their already hard hearts. In this way, God would be assured of their complete destruction. He didn't want any remnant of their evil or idolatry um, left. And I feel that this rings true, that their hearts were already hard 
But if they surrendered still in their rebellion and sin and evil, then imagine the impact that they would have had on God's people as they settled in this land. And so God hardened their already hard hearts. And this should be taken as a sober warning for all of us. Reading through Joshua 10 verse 12 is the biblical equivalent of flicking through your Instagram feed. It gives a glimpse. It's a blitz recollection. It's a Coles Notes version of what took place over a span of years. And, and it's, but it's a montage. And this montage has as its heart this theme that we read in chapter 10 verse 42, where it says, the Lord, the God of Israel fought for Israel. And this is the great news, because what this means is that if you're in Christ, then you can say this, the Lord, the God of the church, fights for the church. And you can say, the Lord, the God of me, fights for me. You see, the, 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 um, yeah, the spiritual battles that you face now are no less significant than the physical battles which the Israelites faced. And the challenge for you to enter into your spiritual inheritance is no less important than the Israelites entering into their physical inheritance. But it's so easy to get super discouraged, to not remember how God has moved in the past. And when faced with yet another army and yet another battle and yet another struggle, it's easy to start questioning God and to doubt whether he's true. And this is why you need a montage, a series of images, of memories, of, 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 of things that have happened that, that you can stitch together and say, yes, because of who, because of God, because God is who he says he is. I am no longer who I was because God is who he is. I am no longer who I was. And so my question for you is, what is your montage? At the start of the sermon, I asked you to list numbers one through five in the, in the sermon notes section of the bulletin. And here's what I want you, to, you to do when, when, when you go home. I want you to start to create your own montage. I want you to start writing down those moments that have shown you that God is at work in your life. And if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, um, if you, if, if for you the jury is still out, if you're still not convinced to take this religion thing onto the level of relationship, then you don't have to leave your list empty either. Because you can write down this, Sunday the 8th of April, I'm at church and God has me here for a reason. You can start to write your montage and ask God to help you fill in the rest. You see, if if you aren't a follower of Christ, if you don't see him as supremely lovely, if you haven't bowed the knee of submission to him yet, my prayer is that one day in the future, that this day today will be part of your montage, one of the steps that God uses to draw you closer to himself, to convince you of his existence. So wherever you are in your faith journey, start creating your montage. Start imagining what it would look like. What scenes will it, will, will it have? What might be the soundtrack to it? Hopefully it's not some cheesy 70s funk like we just heard. But start to, to write it down because when you have the opportunity to talk about your faith, people aren't ready for a prolonged account of Jesus revealing himself to you, uh, where you list every detail, where you talk about the color of the sunrise and what socks you were wearing that morning. A montage by its very nature is short. It's three minutes. First scene, second scene, third scene, fourth scene, fifth scene. 
But then each montage has a theme. It has a purpose. Like, like we just saw here, this Rocky montage is about getting fit, ready to fight. Whereas the montage in Up is, a, is, it's about kids who were friends and then they fell in love and then they got married and then, and then they grew old. The Up montage is about love. And, and the theme of the montage in Joshua 10 through 12 is the Lord, the God of Israel fought for Israel. So what's the theme of your montage? Maybe for some of you, it will be witnessing miracles that, that, that God showed in order to lead you to faith. And for, for, for some of you, maybe it, it will be looking at the evidence for the existence of God and then being convinced in your mind and then in your heart. And then for some of you, it, it will be knowing what it is to be set free from the guilt of your past and the guilt of your sin. For me, my montage has me at the beginning as a good little church kid and the next scene has me questioning my faith and longing to experience what the world has to offer. And then the next scene, I, I, I encounter the purpose of mission and the, and the joy of serving God um, while on missions overseas. Then the next scene, I'm pastoring a church here in Canada and falling more and more in love with a God who's trustworthy and who makes absolute sense. My theme song to my montage would be probably the hymn, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And so the montage, it does not have to be long. Sorry. In fact, it shouldn't be long. The montage should be short and snappy, just showing the change that God and Jesus have wrought in in your life. It should be easy to remember so that if you're having lunch with someone, you you can just pull your montage out of your out of your out of your trouser pocket and 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 you can say to them, This is how God has transformed me. And you don't have to be Rocky to create a montage. You don't have to you don't have to be Joshua. You just need to be you. So my encouragement is, is for you to take time this week to write down your montage, five scenes and a theme that links it all together and pray for the opportunity to share it with someone. Let me leave you with the shortest montage that I think I could find in, in, in scripture. It's in John chapter nine, verse 25. And I love it because it's, it's a montage written by someone who's still on their journey, who still does not know a lot of stuff. Let's listen to it. John nine twenty five says this. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. So this man's talking about Christ and he's saying, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. And this is proof that you do not have to know everything before creating your montage. But, but you know, because this guy didn't even know if Jesus, the son of God, was a sinner or not. But then he, he, he carries on and this is the montage. But one thing I know, I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is what I was. This is what I am now. This is the change that's happened to me because of Jesus. I was this, but now I'm this. This is the transformation, and this is the heart of a montage. I was blind, but now I see.